Welcome to the Soul Sessions Podcast. Deep dive into the causes and real issues underlying addiction, codependency, emotional eating, weight concerns, and the trance of unworthiness. Tune in weekly to befriend, nourish, and heal body, feelings, mind, and soul. And now, your host, soul-centered psychotherapist, trauma expert, and mind-body eating coach, Jody Gale. Welcome to the Soul Sessions with Jody Gale podcast. I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which my office is based and across which we virtually meet and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. I extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening to this podcast. Today, my guest is Laura Reagan. Laura is an integrative trauma therapist using a holistic and attachment focused approach in her work with adult survivors of childhood abuse. She is the owner of a group psychotherapy practice in the Baltimore metro area of the US. In her podcast, Therapy Chat, she interviews therapists, researchers, and other experts on trauma, attachment, relationships, perfectionism, worthiness, mindfulness, and self compassion. Laura is passionate about helping trauma survivors as they work through their healing journeys. She uses her training and experience in working with hundreds of trauma survivors over 18 years, as well as her own personal knowledge of the powerful process of recovering from traumatic experiences to walk alongside her clients. Welcome, Laura. Thank you, Jody. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, me too. Uh, we were just talking beforehand that we've known each other for about 10 years now online as online colleagues. So it's good to finally talk in person. Yeah, 10 years, but I think you're right. Wow. Would you share with our listeners a little bit about yourself and what led you to this work? Sure. Well, as you mentioned in my bio, I'm a trauma therapist and I started out working before I even went to grad school um, in a sexual assault crisis center. In fact, I was a volunteer and that's where I started out in 2002. And to become a volunteer, I had to go through a 40-hour training that involved learning all about how we are impacted by trauma and how sexual violence is a traumatic experience. And that um, I think the thing that was the most significant for me in that experience was learning that experiencing trauma in childhood, whether it's sexual trauma or physical or emotional trauma, is a wound that continues to impact people through adulthood. So we were working with many people who were in their 50s, 60s, and 70s and had experienced childhood sexual abuse and never told anyone. And they were still living with the impact of that uh, traumatic experience years later. Wow. I mean, I was fortunate in a way that at that time in 2002, it wasn't as common for people to understand about trauma as it is now. And although there's still not enough awareness about it, in my opinion, but, you know, it's growing and I'm grateful for that. But realizing that made me rethink, you know, a lot of things about the way I viewed the world, which was, you know, whatever you go through when you're younger, you just like forget about it and then just put it behind you and move on. And when really those experiences continue to impact us over the lifespan in our um, relationships and uh, our self-concept, how we feel about ourselves and our bodies. So mm -hmm. it was pretty profound for me. And 
Um, over the years, I've begun to really get more in tune with the truth that I have experienced childhood trauma myself. I didn't identify as having experienced any childhood trauma, but uh, now I realize that, yes, I'm impacted by trauma too, just like most people. So I mm. kind of came to understand why I'm so deeply passionate about this work. And as I've really walked through my own healing journey, it's been inspiring to realize how much of a difference it can make in one's life to heal those traumatic experiences, heal from those traumatic experiences and live a life that's so much richer than mm. you would have thought was even possible. When I went to grad school, they would talk about trauma, but they didn't really explain it. And they didn't uh -huh. really help you understand how it impacts people. I mean, I was fortunate in one class, I remember I learned about the adverse childhood experiences study. Yep. And I was like, I knew it. <laughs> That's, yeah. There it is. There's the proof. It does affect you over the lifespan. And, and here's why it matters. So it's not just the impact on each individual person, which is so, it really is so deeply important, but it also, it impacts us across our entire culture mm, and our absolutely. world. Yep. And why did you end up working in sexual abuse? Was that by choice? I, I know when I did my training, we were kind of just placed somewhere and it was a bit of a potluck. But um, did you choose to, to work there or? Not consciously. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but when I was still working on my undergrad, I had gone back to school. So I had, I had been in school, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be a therapist, but I didn't know what it was called. So I just sort of was like meandering through college, not knowing what to do. You know, ended up meeting my husband. We got married. I stopped going to school. We had children and then I wanted to go back to it. In fact, I was working in a law firm as a paralegal. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was something that I had, I had a family member who was an attorney. So I was able to like learn the ropes through helping her out. And then I went and worked in a different firm and we did a lot of criminal defense. And I would wonder why people would do the things they would do. And they would be in crisis because they had a legal problem and we would help them get through the legal issue, but we didn't help their underlying problem that caused them to do you know, whatever they did, whether it was having stolen something or having a substance addiction or having, you know, gotten into a fight and hurt someone or even, you know, other types of violence. You know, I was always like, but why? But why do people do these things? Why? And mm. so I, I was like, you know what, I want to go back to school and figure out why. And then I'm going to be a therapist and help people um, who've been um, been through these, you know, things that make them do that, whatever it is, which I didn't know what it was at the time. But then, sure. you know, I went back and got my undergrad in sociology and I wanted to get some experience before applying for grad school. So while I was in undergrad, I found this uh, volunteer opportunity with the local YWCA. I didn't even know it was their sexual assault program. I knew about domestic violence, and I, when I saw that they wanted volunteers, I thought it was probably related to their domestic violence program, but it turned out it was their sexual assault program, and I was, at first I was like, ooh, I don't know, that seems kind of intense. You know, once I did that 40-hour training, I was like, all right, I'm doing this, and I wanted to get out there and do it, and I ended up working there after volunteering for a year and a half. I worked there for almost four years before we moved out of state and moved to the state I live in now, Maryland. And I was working 
here in Maryland in a, a different YWCA sexual assault crisis center, then went back, got my master's. And I just tried to make my social work education be focused in trauma, even though my program wasn't focused in trauma. It's like yep. every research paper I did, I just did it on trauma and yeah, you know, okay. child juvenile offenders and you know, mm-hmm. whatever the subject was, I was focusing it on trauma. Kind of like me, I brought all of mine back to eating issues, which um, underlying was, was trauma also. So we've started to talk a little bit about, you've mentioned sexual assault a few times. And so the topic today is is sexual abuse. So I guess I just want to clarify, and I didn't ask you this in advance, but um, would you talk about what sexual abuse is? And is that different from sexual assault? I guess just to clarify those two terms. Yeah. Sexual abuse is usually referring to childhood sexual abuse, which is when a child is sexually abused by usually someone who has more power than them, someone who's older. It's usually not by a peer. The sexual abuse definition kind of refers to that power imbalance where the person who is older or has more power is exploiting that to use sex as a way to, or sex or no touching, or it may be intercourse or it may not, um, but it's abusive because of the power imbalance where sexual assault is also an abusive act, but it's, it's more of a general term that refers to any unwanted sexual touching, including intercourse. And it doesn't have to have a power imbalance. I mean, it is about power and control, but it doesn't have to be that the person is older. They could even be younger. Yep. You've touched a little bit there around what sexual abuse is. Can you just expand on that a little bit? Just so, Because what happens is I have had a lot of clients over the last 20 years who maybe there hasn't been intercourse and they don't realize that it was sexual abuse sometimes. So what does it look like, sexual abuse? That's a great question. Yeah. yeah. Many people who've experienced sexual abuse don't even recognize it as sexual abuse. They may think of it as an unwanted experience, or they may think of it as something that they wish they hadn't done. But um, the typical scenario of sexual abuse, and I'll just say before I say this, this is obviously a very sensitive topic. And for anyone who is listening, take care while you hear my words, because this is, I'm talking about it, which I talk about it all the time, all day long, but you know, it may bring up feelings for anyone who's listening to be hearing about this. Some common situation uh, where sexual abuse can occur is, well, everyone's heard about, for example, clergy sexual abuse, children who are abused within a church setting or also at school, you know, if a teacher does any touching to a child that's inappropriate and of a sexual manner, I mean, not hitting, obviously, that's physical abuse. Within a family, when a parent or an older sibling or other relative like an uncle or cousin does anything sexual to a child, even though the child may think that there was no violence at all, there were no threats, it's often something like the person is giving the child attention or persuading them to participate in these acts that they don't understand and they may not be developmentally mature enough to really grasp what it all is. The perpetrator is kind of grooming the child. They're pushing the child's boundaries to where the child begins to feel comfortable doing things that 
well, they don't really feel comfortable deep inside. They're sort of like misled. They trust the person and the person is exploiting that trust by getting them to participate in sexual acts that the child wouldn't be involved in if the person hadn't, you know, kind of convinced them to do it, whether it's verbally or through gifts or through opportunity. There's a lot of different ways it can happen. Yeah. Would you say a little bit more about what that might look like? So you've already started to touch on that. So through gifts, what does grooming look like? Well, it's a very common scenario in sexually abusive situations is that there's a child who, for some reason, may not be getting everything they need from their family, whether um, some common scenarios are like, let's say if a father has alcoholism and the mother is very overwhelmed trying to deal with everything in the family, then this child is just kind of like forgotten in a way. They're just, Mm. you know, not intentionally being ignored. The needs they have just, you know, they're kind of like suppressing their own needs so that they won't cause any more trouble for their very burdened mom. And then somebody else comes along who's a family friend, a neighbor, and seems to take an interest in, hey, you know, I'm going to take Johnny bowling. So, you know, I know you guys have a lot going on at home. So I'm going to take Johnny and we're going to go bowling. And, you know, and the mother's like, good, Johnny can get out and have some fun, just kind of forget about everything that's going on at home. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that person who is taking Johnny bowling. And Johnny's like, yay, I get to go bowling. I'm so stressed. I've got this really tough stuff going on at home. I'm so worried about my parents, but I can just forget about that and go bowling. And then maybe they take them bowling and everything's fine. Bring them back home. Johnny had a great time. And the parents are like, oh, thank goodness. You know, somebody's taking an interest in Johnny, helping him out. You know, he's got an adult who can be a mentor for him. And then say five times they go bowling and there's no problem. And then like the sixth time they go bowling and after bowling the so-called, you know, family friend or friendly neighbor says, Hey Johnny, like, I want to show you something. This is really special. Mm. It's just for us. And Johnny doesn't really want to do it, but he likes going bowling. He likes the attention from this person. And he, he, you know, there are certain needs that he has that aren't getting met at home, emotional needs. And so he, he likes this person and he wants to make them happy And they're telling him, you know, this isn't really a big deal or it's something very special between us. And so the child, what they really have to do is they kind of sort of leave their body. They really kind of dissociate and disconnect from what's actually happening. And then, you know, what it looks like is they just are going along with what's happening and the person is using the child to meet their own needs for power and control through sexual methods. And you know, then they take the child back home and Johnny goes home and mom's so preoccupied with all the problems dad's having. She doesn't really pick up on anything being different. And Johnny just goes and kind of says, oh, that was kind of weird. I don't know what that was, but I really like him. He's very nice. And I'm just going to kind of forget that happened. Mm. Try to forget about it. So next time when the neighbor or family friend says, hey, let's go bowling, not Johnny may not really want to, but he's like, still does want to get out of the house and he needs to have some fun, all these problems. So he's just sort of, then he's like sort of already traumatized from the first experience and doesn't really have the ability to 
say no, or even really say, I don't think Mm -hmm. I want to do that. Or maybe doesn't even remember because for, you know, protection, Mm -hmm. the brain just made the child forget what happened. And then they go along and the same thing happens again. And then, you know, and it, it tends to progress from very innocent situations to insidiously sort of creeping into very unsafe situations for the child and the child doesn't even, they're like, I don't know how I got here and I don't know how to get out of this. And I don't know how to talk about it with my parents. And then they often feel, well, I should have told my parents. And Mm -hmm. so this is my fault. And it's extremely confusing and overwhelming and very traumatizing. I guess at that age, children don't really obviously know these terms, but there's a lot of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things going on, isn't there? Absolutely. Which stops them from being able, they don't know it's shame at that age. But yes, who typically, so, you know, we're talking about neighbours and, you know, I mean, over the years I've heard of of coaches and Mm -hmm. typically people um, known typically, isn't it, for, for sexual abuse in childhood? Definitely. It's very commonly, more often than not, you know, we teach our kids don't talk to strangers, but it's usually not strangers who do this. And that, again, is very confusing for kids because... I shouldn't have to fear my teacher. I know my teacher. She's nice to me. She gives me candy or whatever. And then, you know, the teacher says, hey, do you want to be my special messenger and take this note to the next classroom? And, you know, like teacher's pet kind of thing. And then that gives the the teacher an opportunity to abuse the child. And the child just... Children wouldn't know. They trust. They're innocent. They wouldn't know that someone who should be safe would do something that would be harmful for them. Yeah. And as I was going to ask you about, does this happen in some kinds of families more than others? And what I'm hearing you say is that there is already a trauma history going on in Mm -hmm. that family alongside or prior to this happening where, and I think you said the child for attention. And I guess I just want to say to people listening that um, I think that word attention can have some negative sort of connotations, but, um, but children are desperate and it's the same with eating disorders. We often see people say they're not about attention from my perspective, somewhere this child has not been seen and heard Mm-hmm. And and this is a way of getting some kind of someone see me, someone hear me, someone take notice of me. And what I'm hearing from what you're saying is that children who fall prey to grooming are potentially along this line where there's something lacking at home like that in terms of the, their needs being met properly. Yeah, I would say it's, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's more likely to happen in one family or another, but I think where the difference is, is that when, like I use the example of mom being preoccupied, where there is a situation where the family is overwhelmed for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, mom has a chronic illness and she's sick. And so dad's really focused on trying to do everything Mm, for the family and take care of her. When there's like a vulnerability within the family, adult abusers are very likely to try to take advantage of that. So they they do seek out families where the parents are likely, because, you know, if your family's doing fine and you're really well connected in the community and a different family member is suddenly like, I want to take an interest in your child and get them out of the house and take them bowling, you would be like, 
but why don't we all go, you know? Yeah, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> if you're so overwhelmed and preoccupied that you can't really meet your kids' emotional needs and there is someone who sees an opportunity to get in there and take advantage of your vulnerability and the child's need for that extra attention, they that gives them a perfect opening. Mm. But on the other hand, in a family where there is not that sense of overwhelm, the opportunity could still present itself and it could still happen, yeah, unfortunately, sure. because it's a very common problem. It's a very common experience that children are being sexually abused, sadly. Mm. Do you know what the rate of abuse is? Yeah, I do have some statistics, at least in the US, but I just want to say real quick about that, mm. though. What's different in the family that's not as overwhelmed is the parent may notice something's not not right here. What's going on with Johnny? Yeah, and, okay. you know, and the child feels comfortable to tell, well, Mr. So-and-so gave me candy if I would do this with him. And then right away, the parent's like, oh, no one should be touching you that way, you know, and then they report it to the police and yep. et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, in an overwhelmed family, the parent may not even be able to see that something's wrong and the child doesn't feel comfortable telling the parent, especially if the parent has also experienced that kind of abuse. They may now, and I'm not saying this to shame anyone of us who's listening to this who has experienced childhood sexual abuse, but Sometimes if the parent has experienced that kind of abuse because they dissociated through it to get mm. through it and then they forgot, it's like a blind spot for them that mm. they miss what a parent who's not as dissociative would see. Hey, something's wrong with my child. What is it? You know, but it's not the perpetrator is the one who's to blame. It's not the parents. It's not the family, but a certain set of conditions being present does make it kind of like just a perfect storm to create mm -hmm. that environment where it can happen mm -hmm. and, and okay. repeatedly like over years that's that's the other thing is that it isn't often just like a one-time thing the, yeah that's if the right. vulnerability is there that perpetrator is going to continue to exploit it yeah i mean i've even heard stories over the years where it's happened to more than one child in the family as well so it's absolutely very common and and working with people with eating issues, I would say over 50% of um, my client base over the last 20 years have had sexual abuse of some kind. I'm not sure what the actual statistics are there, but that's just from my experience. And one of the concerns that comes up a lot is that when the child is abused, and this, this is also from colleagues and friends who have had abuse in childhood, the way the disclosure of the abuse has been handled by family members from my experience can also be traumatizing so for example I've had people say that the parents have sort of said if you would have told us we could have done something about it and you know there's cases where the child is not believed by parents in some situations mm -hmm. obviously the mother might or father depending might um, stay in relationship with the abuser it could be the child's father or an uncle or a grandfather so I guess I've got two questions what impact does this well, there's two. What impact does the abuse have on a child? And what impact does, when the disclosure hasn't been handled in, in an optimal way, what impact does that have on a child? Well, I will say that the abuse itself can be very impactful. It's a traumatizing experience. And because it usually involves 
someone the child trusts. Mm. There's like an attachment wound or injury there, you know, in that this is someone who should be safe and instead they're harming me. So it doesn't have to be like a primary attachment figure, like a parent to have that impact because children, their sense of the world is I'm small and the adults in this world should be safe. That's mm-hmm. how they come into the world. They're defenseless and they depend on adults to keep them safe. And so when someone betrays that trust, harms them in that way, even if they don't consciously know it to be harmful when it happens and afterwards, because of the dissociation, because you sort of disconnect from what's happening. So you don't really feel the impact, but subconsciously or unconsciously, it's still there. So that child would be likely to have body image issues, Mm -hmm. eating issues, relationship problems, substance abuse problems, Mm self-loathing, a lot of internalizing or externalizing behaviors. So either the internalizing behaviors like eating disorders, self-loathing, low self-esteem, confidence issues, mood swings, things like that, or Mm -hmm. the externalizing things where they're violent towards others. They may be hypersexual, so then they're more sexually promiscuous than they might have been if that had never happened. Mm -hmm. And I'm not judging, you know, people's Mm -hmm. decisions about what they do sexually, but when it's a situation where you're having sex with people, you don't even necessarily want to have sex with them, but you're just doing it almost like compulsively, that can be an impact of sexual abuse. And when they tell their parent and they're not believed or they're blamed, that's extremely detrimental. I mean, that's when I see people who have multiple suicide attempts, persistent eating disorders over Mm -hmm. decades and decades that they no amount of treatment is is helping them to recover just you know more extreme more acute crisis continuous crisis but a lot of it also depends on the age when it happens other attachment relationships they may have that could be healthy can help offset the harm so it's not ever black and white but i think the stronger the attachment relationships they had if they had safe attachment relationships in childhood, it can lead them to be more like a very high achieving person who secretly has low self-esteem versus someone who, you know, never really gets out of the gate because they just keep having to go back to the hospital or, Mm. you know, their substance addiction or different unhealthy relationships just keep holding them back from really flying the way that they would have. So more sort of self-sabotaging and self-destructive behaviors rather than, yeah, the other side goes to perfectionism and high achieving and yeah, okay. I mean, the impact is extremely significant and I would say that trauma in general, but sexual violence is really a common problem in people who seek therapy, even Mm -hmm. if they don't identify as having experienced it, even Mm -hmm. if they don't really consciously know that something they went through was sexually traumatic. Mm -hmm. I'm just thinking too about when this has happened from someone, you know, just say um, by a father, and obviously the child has had a 
I mean, maybe a str- well, who knows what the attachment's been like, but I've certainly seen over the years these girls feeling very, very confused about having loving feelings for someone, but then also having this trauma alongside that, and they're obviously riddled with guilt and shame. What would you say to someone like this in terms of if this has happened to them? Well, I would first just, I like to use a lot of psychoeducation in my initial work with people who've experienced trauma to help them understand why they feel, you know, that these are normal reactions to trauma. But I would tell that person that children love their parents. It's Mm -hmm. normal to love your parent. Your dad may not have been unkind to you in any other way besides this. So it's confusing and that makes sense, but it's possible to both be angry at him for what he did, feel devastated by the betrayal of what he did, and also to love him and to feel sorry for him, that we can hold a lot of different feelings, even feelings that are in opposition to one another all at once. And that's normal. When people experience abuse in childhood, it's very, very common to say, you know, I should hate him. Why do I hate him? And really, I feel sorry for him. And that's all I feel. And it's like, maybe the feeling of anger has been suppressed because this was her dad. So Mm -hmm. she still loved him. She still depended on him. It's like, you're not really free. It's not like you're choosing an adult relationship where you're free to choose whoever you want to be with, with your parent. That's your parent and you depend on them Mm -hmm. your whole childhood. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like wired into your brain development that this person, I love him and I'm afraid of him and I'm angry at him and I don't trust him and I do trust him and all of it. It's very confusing. And I heard you say that people who have been sexually abused are more likely to be sexually assaulted later in life. Can you say a little bit more about why that is? Yeah. And I don't want that to sound like I'm blaming childhood sexual abuse survivor for experiencing repeated sexual violence later. Good point. It's really about, it's that way that we dissociate. Let's say if I were sexually abused by, let's say, my uncle, this has not happened, so I'm making this up. Mm -hmm. But if I was sexually abused by my uncle and I loved my uncle, I had to disconnect from what was happening. So I dissociated through the experience. So in my mind and in my memory, consciously, this has not happened. I don't know that this happened. Or I do know that it happened, but I think it's something that I did, not an abusive situation, like something bad I did. So I internalize this belief about myself that I'm bad, and I don't really know why. It's like this vague sense that I'm, I feel like I'm bad. That's all in my subconscious, my unconscious, not really in my awareness, even if I remember what happened. And so that's the thing with dissociation is that there's these different levels of how much you are aware or not aware of things. But if you're disconnected from the emotions of it, and then you grow up, or it's me we're talking about in my hypothetical Mm -hmm. situation. So I grow up and unconsciously, I'm kind of drawn to relationships where I, it sort of reinforces my deep belief that I am bad. And it's almost like unconsciously I'm reenacting this abusive dynamic between myself and my uncle that I don't even know is there. 
So when I meet someone who is, let's say, violent or just not safe, I don't really pick up on it because that part of me that knows that is tucked away out of my conscious awareness, right? So then where if I didn't have that experience, I might sense danger and I might say, I don't like this person. I don't Mm. like how I feel when I'm around them, but that doesn't come up because it's not in my awareness. So then when this person does something that harms me, whether it's a friendship or an abusive partner, like a domestic violence relationship, or it's someone I'm meeting, let's say someone I go out on a date with and I, we have dinner and then I think they're very nice and they're actually planning on raping me Mm. and I'm just not aware of it. Like I'm not picking up on it. I'm not sensing any danger. I'm just feeling like, oh, everything seems fine. You know, just the same kind of innocence that a child would have where adults can predict things that are going to happen. They're like, oh, this seems like a sketchy situation. But for children, they're just like, la-di-da, you know, they just walk right into things because they're innocent. They miss those red flags, don't they? Exactly, exactly. So if that were to happen, it doesn't mean it was my fault or I should have known better because it's still on that perpetrator not to harm me. But my vulnerability from this unresolved trauma that's out of my conscious awareness is something that this other person can kind of, they can sense it. I mean, studies have shown that, have you heard about this before, what I'm saying about uh, how perpetrators can sense vulnerability? I have, yeah. So like where they did a study that I think it was um, just people who had committed acts of violence, violent crimes, they asked them how they chose their Mm -hmm. victims. And they, they said, like, I can sense their vulnerability. And I targeted them rather than another person who didn't seem as vulnerable. And so that's a recipe for disaster for the victim. Mm. And then when confronted with that situation, you know, here going back to the hypothetical, I'm on this date with this guy who I think is perfectly nice, but he's planning on trying to do some kind of sexual violence to me. Then he starts crossing my boundaries. He's testing to see, you know, assert myself while I advocate for myself or remove myself from the situation. And as I'm not aware of it, I don't. And then, you know, he's saying, oh, I've really got a good person here to victimize. But once the actual actual victimization moment begins, I have the same trauma reaction, the dissociation, or I freeze. Sometimes it won't be that. Sometimes it won't be freeze. It won't be a zoning out and just leaving your body. You will either run away or you'll scream for help or you'll fight. But oftentimes, because children are inherently powerless to fight back with adults, whatever that initial traumatization was and how your brain protected you to get through that experience, it usually goes to that again. So if you dissociated to get through that experience and then this situation arises, you're likely to dissociate again and Mm. and not be able to get yourself out of that situation until afterwards and go, oh my gosh, he Mm. did this to me. And, you know, I think the other thing too, that I I often see is that having grown up in a a sort of trauma history myself, there's there's so much self-loathing as well. And Mm -hmm. if people are medicating with alcohol and drugs, I I know I always, always for most of my twenties ended up in super risky situations that I didn't realize 
you know, were risky because that was just normal. And I, I really want to come back to, you know, for anyone listening that this, again, what Laura's saying and what I'm saying, this isn't about self-blame. Actually, what we needed and what we need is a lot of self-compassion and mm-hmm. a, a lot of self-care because it's always the abuser's fault. Yep. It's never the victim's fault. Yeah. And so, Laura, how do women begin from your perspective? How do women begin to heal if, you know, maybe someone's listening to this and, you know, they haven't sought help or maybe they didn't even realize until now? What what would you say to them in terms of getting some help and what can they do at home? And Well, I would say that it's important for people to realize that they're not alone. As you've heard, this is a very common experience, unfortunately. So, If you are hearing this and you're saying, well, I did have an experience like that, but I always kind of thought that it was something that I brought upon myself because I shouldn't have been there, I shouldn't have worn that, or I shouldn't have trusted that person or whatever, please do try to be compassionate with yourself and realize that it is not your fault that someone did this to you and you can feel so much better. I mean, therapy really can help if you get trauma therapy, especially with someone who understands and specializes in sexual violence, although that that's not always just the easiest thing to find. But I don't know how it is in Australia. Do you have sexual assault crisis hotlines there? We do. We have a very, uh, they've changed name now. They were rape crisis. So that's a national line and where people can get free counselling. And I think they can get a substantial amount of of counselling through them. I think they might be called sexual assault and something Australia now. But um, if you type in rape crisis in Australia, they'll definitely come up. Yeah. So free hotlines where you can talk to someone and just sort of sort through it. And it doesn't mean necessarily telling your story from the beginning to end, which is another thing that people often think is going to happen if they go to therapy, that they're going to have to tell what happened from beginning to end. And that's not the norm. You should be able to go and say something happened to me. It was traumatic and not have to go into detail. And the the therapist should still be able to help you. And you can share as much or as little as you want. Here in the U.S., we have sexual assault crisis centers that offer free or very low-cost therapy as well, and we have 24-hour crisis hotlines. There are also, I think, crisis text lines and crisis chat lines for sexual violence that you can also access just to be clear that people who have had sexual abuse or sexual assault can call, I think in Australia, that's definitely the case for rape crisis. So, mm-hmm. you know, regardless of what age you were or what happened, I think you can use these, all of these lines. So is that the same in the US or? Correct. Yeah. It is. Yeah. One common fear that people have when they think about getting therapy for sexual violence is Is the therapist or counselor going to call the police or report to protective services because I may not be ready to, Mm, you know, have everyone know that this happened yet? So it's always okay to ask. There's something that happened to me that I would like to talk about, but I want to know what's the privacy on this? Where's the confidentiality? Where are the limits? So I think that knowledge is power and you have control over who you share your story with. So it's really helpful to find out. Let's say if I tell the counselor, you know, when I was younger, my next door neighbor sexually abused me. Are they going to be calling the police or call 
protective services to report that. It's different everywhere. Even in the U.S., from state to state, the rules are different about what has to be reported to protective services and or the police. So, you know, as much as possible, you want to have agency over your own experience and who knows about it and and when. So um, oftentimes when we realize that we've experienced some kind of sexual violence in the past, there's like an urge to tell the story and tell whoever will listen or to confront the perpetrator. And I would say, I don't suggest doing that because first of all, confronting the perpetrator, usually the the victim who wants to confront the perpetrator, they're hoping that the person will admit what they did and apologize, which almost never happens. Not in that initial confrontation anyway. And then that's re-traumatizing because then you, you know, you're saying, hey, you did this to me. And they're like, you're lying. That can send you to a spiral. So it's very important to find someone you trust who you know will honor your wishes about confidentiality. So even if it's not a therapist, if you have a trusted friend who you know has some wisdom, maybe they've been through something like this and they've gone through therapy and you feel like they can hold this and just help you sort through what do you want to do next? That could be a a good start. Yeah. And I know that book, The Courage to Heal, used to be the kind of go-to book for these kind of concerns. Is that still a popular book or is there something more updated than that? Or, Well, that's still the only book I know of that is as comprehensive as it is, but I will say that is a very hard book to read. It I is. Mean, it is. It's, has a lot of firsthand accounts of people's experiences of being sexually abused. And it can be, for some people, it can be re-traumatizing to read all these different experiences of other people when you're already very overwhelmed with your own pain from your experience. So I'm not saying it's not a good book, but it has to be the right moment. I'm just thinking too, because that's quite old now, isn't it? So it's probably not as trauma informed as what it could be. Yeah. When I think about books, you know, people are always saying, what's a great book for someone who's experienced sexual violence? And it's like, Ooh, that's a tough one because it's something that It's a relational experience and to try to heal by reading a book is kind of a solo experience. So it it can be hard, but I will say there is a woman who teaches yoga for survivors of sexual violence Mm -hmm. um, course online. Her name is Zabie. I cannot remember. I think it's Transcending Sexual Violence Through Yoga is the name of her her, um, group. Yeah, I'll send you the details on that so you could include it in the show notes. I think that is something that could be very healing and it's not that expensive. And I think, I'm not even sure, but she may have discounts, but I I recall it's not that expensive. I guess what's nice about that too, it will likely be healing that split from the body that people have had when they've been traumatized in this way. Absolutely. Exactly. And I know that the course has meditations and it's not just like learning. Obviously, it's very somatic to being a yoga course. Mm. And there's also another woman, a friend, someone who's been on my podcast, Natita Gassell is her name. She also does yoga for sexual violence. She has a course. I think both of these are really good resources. And as we know, trauma is held in the body and mm. yoga that is specifically for that can be, I think, pretty helpful. Yeah, I'm going to put in there too. Around, is it Kristen Neff or Kirsten? 
Neff. Kristen Neff. Kristen Neff. Self-compassion. Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's sort of really coming to mind for me. And I'll tell you what it is. It's your tone of voice, Laura. It's so compassionate. (laughs) I was thinking, oh, "Oh my God, that's so soothing. Yeah, Yeah. I'm thinking her website's a really great resource too. And obviously she's got a book as well. And I think there's even some some free meditations and things like that on there as well. So Definitely. I mean, there is, there are so many resources out there, thankfully, but it's just like knowing how to find them. But self-compassion is a huge one. Using trauma, I mean, using yoga to heal trauma is very valuable. And really, I think even though the experience of sexual abuse trauma is very specific. There are a lot of good books on there about healing trauma. And one is Gretchen Schmelzer's book. Actually, the book Healing the Fragmented Selves of Trauma Survivors by Janina Fisher is for the general public and for therapists. And I think that that is a really helpful book, as well as Sarah Payton, P-E-Y-T-O-N, has a book called your resident self. And she has courses and a lot of meditations on her website that are very helpful too. And then the book Self Therapy by Jay Early, which is an IFS book, I would also recommend. What Laura means by IFS for anyone listening is internal family systems and or some other names that it's known by subpersonalities and ego states. So um, I'll, I'll link to that as well. So we're running out of time, Laura, unfortunately. (laughs) That was fast. It was fast. So you used to work with clients. I am. You are. Good. So how Mm -hmm. do people find, first of all, how do people find you for therapy? Okay. Um, My website is www.bahealing.com. It stands for Baltimore Annapolis Center for Integrative Healing, but we just call it B as in boy, A as in apple, healing.com. And you can actually find the website, I mean, the podcast there too. Oh, that's there as well. Great. And so, the, I mean, I obviously listen to your podcast and I know a lot of therapists do. Is it aimed at the general public as well as therapists? Well, I mean, I really felt like it was for professionals because we do talk at kind of a high level about clinical stuff, but so many people get in touch with me and say, I'm not a therapist, but I love your podcast. I've learned so much. It's really helped me. So, you know, it's all how much you have a familiarity with the kind of a lot of the therapy lingo. I think we do try to talk in a down to earth way, but sometimes we're using clinical terms that people might not be familiar with. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I love it. Uh, You know, you've got so many wonderful guests on there. So uh, just repeat your website again so that people can find the podcast. Sure. It's bahealing.com or therapychatpodcast.com. It goes to the same place. Okay, great. Well, all right, Laura, thank you so much for coming on the show. You know, it's really lovely to talk to you and you've obviously got so much wisdom and knowledge around this area and also just trauma in general. So I think women are going to get a lot out of your wisdom today. Thank you, Jody. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. This is episode 24. For the show notes, go to the soulcenter.online forward slash soul sessions 24, recovering from sexual abuse. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. 
Thank you for listening to the Soul Sessions podcast. Love this episode? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. To learn more about how you can befriend your body, feelings, mind, and soul, get Jody's free 65-page ebook at thesoulcenter.online. Until next time.